I have called up in all my years of sorcery, no god or devil, ominous and gibbous. And the thing was a streaming ooze of charnel The wormy corpses that he dug with his hands from unconsecrated graves. It is verily known by few, there were people, but it's mostly priests and women, it is told, whom he picked up as they fled, and pulled limb from limb as a child might quarter an insect. The Double, the double shadow. shadow, a Clark, Clark, Ashton, Ashton, Clark Ashton Smith podcast. Hello and welcome to The Double Shadow, a podcast exploring the weird fiction of 20th century writer Clark Ashton Smith. I'm Tim. I'm Phil. And I'm Ruth. This week we'll be covering The Seven Geeses with special returning guest Jason Thompson, and that's me. Hurrah! Hey, welcome back, Jason. Hey, He's thank back. you so much for having me back. Jason, After I tore up the Jason. place last time, I'm you know I'm just glad. I'm grateful. You that, did. You, know. you you kicked the door down on this you podcast, did. and you just started wrecking up the place. All we the had to rebuild wine a little. And, you know, <laughs> all the jonga beans. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> got, what, yeah got carried away. You know. <laughs> what have you been up to since last we spoke, Jason? What's been going on with you? Uh, well, I've been doing a lot of work for Wizards of the Coast on their website, some comics and maps and stuff. Um, I've uh, recently relaunched a older webcomic that I did, The Stiff, which is kind of a, uh, kind of a, a horror, horror story, um, set in the years of adolescence. And, uh, that's something that I've, uh, just actually started putting it up again, but there's about 250 pages of older oh, wow. material oh. that I'm going to be putting up before I get to the new stuff. Altogether, it's about a thousand-page story. So I've, uh, I've really, I really locked myself in for the long haul. <laughs> That's intense. You're like Dave Sim. Yeah. Oh my God. It's minus the misogyny <laughs> and like. Religious I was going to say minus the misogyny, but do we know that for we sure? We don't know. Oh we my God. No, no, no. You'll have to look inside my we heart. We might find out. <laughs> on this misogyny-packed episode of the Double Shadow. Oh. No, 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 no. <laughs> Perhaps not. <laughs> I have to say, Jason, that I am thoroughly enjoying those um, one-page D&D maps based off of the classic modules. They're oh, amazing. Oh, thank you. I love oh, thanks, them. man. Yeah, I'm doing a bunch more. So um, hopefully those will be coming out soon. And I recently did a story for an anthology of comics about um, alternative sexuality. It's called Anything That Loves. So I did a 16-page story in that. And I'm working on another horror story, which is a horror story. The one of the sexuality anthology is not a horror story. <laughs> well, Perhaps, uh, thankfully. it could be. It could be. But uh, in this case, it isn't. Uh, it's just an embarrassment <laughs> Horrible story. beasts have to get their loving on too, Jason. Aww. Oh, I, so true. You know, I wanted to... How do you think yeah. the Vormies came into being? Ooh, um, tie that one right back. Damn. When a woman loves an ultra-stellar creature. <laughs> when a woman loves a Thalagwa very, very much. <laughs> Gross. Better than Ubosathla, am I right? I don't know, man. I don't know. <laughs> it all goes back to Ubosathla. You can't really... It really yeah. So we here at the Devil Shadow forgot to mention that we had our one-year anniversary as a podcast a couple, like a month ago at this point, right? We did, did yes. You? Yeah. It was, in, it was in April, late April. I just wanted to belatedly pat ourselves on the back. That's it. <laughs> Congratulations, guys. Thank you. Thanks. Jason. And this is episode Thanks, 30. Jason. Who knew we'd make it to episode 30? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I kind of yeah. hope we would, but. So, wait, how are we? Should we agree on a pronunciation for G E A S E S? Okay, so I hate to, to do this, but I went to Wikipedia. Uh-huh. <laughs> I know. That never ends well. 
Um, so according to um, Celtic, it's actually spelled G-E-I-S. Plural is G-E-A-S-A. So it, people sometimes just call it G-A-S. According to the pronunciation guide, G as in guy, short E as in bed, so ge, and sh as in shy, so gesh. In this case, I guess, with the E-S, geshes or gesha, um, if you were being Celtic or Gaelic. But anyway, I see now why people pronounce it geshes, because I really was not seeing that. But if you see the G-E-I-S, that actually makes sense. And I guess we're just going to have to call it geshes from now on. <laughs> I, although I feel like we should defer to our guest, and if he wants to call it, continue to call it geeses, I'm okay with that. No, guys, let's call it geshes, and we'll just have to fumble. Maybe we can uh, take a shot whenever we say geeses by accident. Or, <laughs> yeah. like or maybe perhaps the listener can take a shot. Yes. Yeah, so we should have a swear jar or something. <laughs> a guest jar. <laughs> um, so The Seven Geshes was first published in Weird Tales in October 1934, uh, along with uh, a lot of names that are very familiar to us and some not so familiar, like H. Bedford Jones, Ronald Kayser, and Giovanni Margarini Graziani, who I learned from the internet is the only Italian to be published by the magazine. And he has kind of a cool biography. He, he wasn't really even known for horror tales, but he did a lot of like highfalutin historical writing in, in, in Italy and then did like ghost stories on the side. So uh, I, I kind of wanted to, I told myself for this episode I was going to, because Weird Tales, you know, they had a poetry section. So I was like, I should find one of the poems from these episodes that were published in the same magazine and, and talk about them. But unsurprisingly, I guess, the internet doesn't really keep a very active archive of 1930s pulp poetry. <laughs> so <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't find uh, any of it. Ruth, maybe so. that should be your next archivist project. Yes, go to... The pulp poems of the 1930s. Oh, lordy lord. <laughs> I'm sure that, that there would be a lot of quality stuff. <laughs> <laughs> like my cat, Kishi. <laughs> you know what? If we can find that, that would be amazing. Well, Smith loved it, I guess. He did love the poetry. That he yeah. did. I, I was reading through his letters and about this story, and as he was writing it, he kept noting in the letters multiple times that his demon of irony kept trying to work its way into the story. So <laughs> I think it definitely worked its way in. Oh yeah. <laughs> I think I think I know a couple of places where I'm like, yep. Which is good. This is whole this whole thing's kinda like a shaggy dog story really. Yes. It sort of starts off seriously, but by the end it's just so much that it's almost a joke without actually anything funny actually happening. <laughs> Whoa, um, except for the very end. That was hilarious. Well, yeah. I don't know. I thought of a better punchline to this, but let's go. Oh, well. Let's go into the. Let's, let's go into, get the into it. The Lord Ralabar Vuz, High Magistrate of Camorium and third cousin to King Homquat, had gone forth with six and twenty of his most valorous retainers in quest of such game as was afforded by the Black Iglofian Mountains. Leaving to lesser sportsmen the great sloths and vampire bats of the intermediate jungle, as well as small but noxious dinosauria, Ralabar Vuz and his followers had pushed rapidly ahead and had covered the distance between the Hyperborean capital and their objective in a day's march. The glassy scars and grim ramparts of Mount Vormitadres, highest and most formidable of the Iglophians, had beetled above them, Witting the sun with dark, scoriac peaks at mid-afternoon, and wailing the blazonries of sunset wholly from view. They had spent the night beneath its lowermost crags, keeping a ceaseless watch, 
piling dead branches on their fires, and hearing on the grisly heights above them the wild and dog-like ululations of those subhuman savages, the Vormis, for which the mountain was named. Also, they heard the bellowing of an alpine catoblepis pursued by the Vormis, and the mad snarling of a saber-toothed tiger assailed and dragged down. And Ralabar Vuz had deemed that these noises boded well for the Morho's hunting. Amazing. Wow. Oh, we have this guy, and he's a super rich dude with 26 retainers who's out sport hunting for Vormies, who themselves are on the top of the food chain hunting saber-toothed tigers. I think he should be hunting dinosaurs. That's just me, because dinosaurs have died out in our time. I guess he did hunt dinosaurs. I'm sorry, do you know anybody who hunts Vormies in our time? (laughs) Yeah, I know. This Vuz guy's a thrill seeker. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> i also like that he hunted a, he's hunting a catoblepis which is um <laughs> of course is like a mythological creature so not only do we have dinosaurs in there but we have the catoblepis which uh i believe was the creature which its gaze was so terrifying that if you looked you in the eyes you died wow amazing I'll see if i can find a picture of one for the <laughs> they might hunt and kill dinosaurs or maybe it's just in the past because they have dinosaur leather hose Oh, that's true. I remember hearing that and thinking, that's really awesome. Yep. All of Vuz's followers are like decked out with sawtooth axes and dinosaur leather jerkins. And uh, Vuz yeah. is wearing like copper chain mail. Mm-hmm. He's got a whole arsenal of weaponries. Yeah, it's pretty cool. This guy's badass. And um, maybe it's a spoiler, but a little later we find out his full inventory of weapons is is a bladed buckler, a mace, a broadsword, a hunting knife, an axe, and a needle-tipped anlace, which apparently is, according to uh, some dictionary site, which I didn't remember their name, a medieval short dagger with a broad tapering blade. And his buckler has a long bronze spike in the center that can be used as a thrusting sword. Like he comes up to things and just sort of thrusts against them like, oh. I hope nothing bad happens to this guy. Yeah, he's clearly hero <laughs> material. Well, you know, if this were Robert E. Howard, it probably would all be fine. What happens when the day dawns? Uh, well, there just aren't enough Vormis around, so they decide that they're going to go higher and seek them in the cavern, which is kind of cool. It's a little more dangerous hunting, so that's the kind of thing that they're up for. So they head on up and start talking about the mountain, which... We hear is apparently where Sathagwa lives, under the mountain, and his worshippers turn toward it as they pray, which, as Phil notes, is an amazing piece of detail. Yeah, I love so that. So now we can find the location of the mountain if we just watch some Tosagio worshippers. Yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> we just gather them from enough directions and kind of pinpoint our way in. Also, we could go to Vormi, Vormi Thadreth ourselves and, uh, and perhaps mm-hmm. barter our way past the Vormis. I mean, if we're not coming with all, all of our arms and... We also learn about Ralabar that he's kind of akin to a couple of our other Hyperborean heroes uh, in that he's not a man of superstition. Mm-hmm. So when the members of his cadre talk about how Sathagwa lives under the mountain, he thinks that that's just poppycock, basically. He's uh, thoroughly modern. He says, actually, I love this. He says, with many ribald blasphemies, that there are no gods anywhere above or underneath for for (laughs) Mithadreth. I love ribald blasphemies. There are some ribald blasphemies later in the story, in fact. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, there are, yeah. 
So he, like any person from like several hundred thousand years ago, was a thoroughly modern guy who doesn't believe in the supernatural. <laughs> he just believes in dinosaur hunting and I feel killing like Neanderthals, basically. Clark Ashton Smith has made that same joke, maybe in three <laughs> different Hyperborean stories. I just feel like he's so um, he's so amused by it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Doesn't the White Sybil have it too? I feel like it, I feel like it's three, including this one. But maybe it I'm might wrong. be. It's definitely the Ice Demon. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then this one, and I feel like there's an inkling of it in in the Testament of Athamaeus as well, although it's probably not as distinctly stated. Good old uh, joke. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. Good old Rallabar Vuz. What a manly man. <laughs> he really is. They're hanging out on the mountain. They tried climbing up, and the mountain, since it's made of like volcanic rock, it's getting hot. But Ralabarvuz won't let his men stop. He's like, just keep going. It's not that hot, you pansies. And I think that's in the text of the story. Um, but then they find three caves that seem inaccessible, but Vuz sees a way in, like a diagonal crack leading up to a shelf. Mm-hmm. It's um, a, a chimney in rock climbing yeah. terms. So he starts climbing it, climbing the diagonal crack. And he sort of, um, the landscape turns weird and suddenly it's a little, it's a little like a, a mirage and he gets separated from his men and he can kind of hear them off in the distance calling for him, but he assumes they're going to catch up to him. So he just keeps going and going. And then he starts to hear some strange voices up ahead. And you know, that's always a good, a good reason to yeah. keep going forward. While he's up there, he sees smoke off in the distance. So he goes to follow the smoke and the land just keeps changing and getting weird and he can't seem to get closer to where the smoke is no matter how hard he tries and oh wait wasn't at some point maybe when he was climbing up weren't the vormies throwing things at him uh yeah they throw like awful and and, uh, and stuff at them and human bones and things yeah that's amazing this story like it hits the ground running with the adventure Mm -hmm. it does there's no like you know two drunk thieves Nonsense <laughs> no. this one. It's just like we are yeah. on the mountain, we're armed to the teeth, and we are gonna hunt some some Vormies. What do you never mind. I was gonna say, what do you think what do you think a ribald blasphemy is? I mean, just can you think of one off the top of your head that doesn't come from the story? Oh man. <laughs> right? It's tricky. Yeah. Because it's an awesome term, but I can't I can't just whip one out. <laughs> I'm too shy. I don't wanna <laughs> Oh come on, Jason. 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 I'm a nice religious girl. Stop. <laughs> I'm gonna run off and hide under Mount Hormitadras. Tim, it's on you. Uh, I balled it up. Your mother slept with the Vormi's father. A, figure. a blasphemy, Tim. It has to, you know, there has to be a blasphemy. <laughs> your God has sex with Vormi's. Um, okay, okay, that's that's, that's that's better. <laughs> Is it ribald? All right, let's go into the let's yeah. let's, let's continue. <laughs> <laughs> So he follows the smoke, right? Mm-hmm. He does, yeah. And then he, as Jason said, he hears voices in a cave. And one of them is Hyperborean, and the other... One of the voices was clearly that of a Hyperborean, but the others possessed a timber and accent which Ralabar Vuz, in spite of his varied ethnic knowledge, could not associate with any branch or subdivision of mankind. They affected his ears in a most unpleasant fashion, suggesting by turns the hum of great insects, the murmurs of fire and water, and the rasping of metal. Man, that's so cool. Yeah, it is. Yeah. 
so he comes over the the top of like a cliff, right? And he sees on this. I'm assuming it's a plateau, but I can't remember exactly. An old man uh, talking to a bird. Yeah. A strange bird. But isn't he also talking? He's talking to like colored flames too, right? I think he's. The idea is that there's. He's made this like sacrificial fire, and there's these colored flames burning there, and his bird's also hanging out. But whatever he's talking to just vanished because Ralabar Vuz is mm-hmm. basically uh, okay. blundered and going like, "Hello, hello!" Yeah. <laughs> and they're like demons or spirits or whatever. The <laughs> elementals just are. They like leave and they're annoyed. And yeah. so who else is annoyed? Is the sorcerer, of course. Know that I am the sorcerer Esdegor, proclaimed the ancient, his voice echoing among the rocks with dreadful sonority. By choice I have lived remote from cities and men, nor have the Vormis of the mountain troubled me in my magical seclusion. I care not if you are the magistrate of all swindom or a cousin to the king of dogs. In retribution for the charm you have shattered, the business you have undone by this oafish trespass, I shall put upon you a most dire and calamitous and bitter gish. You speak in terms of outmoded superstition, said Ralabar Vuz, who is impressed against his will by the weighty oratorical style in which Esdegor had delivered these periods. The old man seemed not to hear him. Hearken then to your gesh, O Ralabar Vuz, he fulminated, for this is the gesh, that you must cast aside all your weapons and go unarmed into the dens of the Vormis, and fighting bare-handed against the Vormis and against their females and their young, you must win to that secret cave in the bowels of Vormith for death, beyond the dens wherein abides from eldermost eons the god Sathagua. You shall know Sathagua by his great girth and his bat-like furriness and the look of a sleepy black toad which he has eternally. He will not rise from his place, even in the ravening of hunger, but will wait in divine slothfulness for the sacrifice. And going close to Lord Sathagua, you must say to him, I am the blood offering sent by the sorcerer Esdagor. Then, if it be his pleasure, Sathagua will avail himself of the offering. In order that you may not go astray, the bird Raftontis, who is my familiar, will guide you in your wanderings on the mountainside and through the caverns. He indicated with a peculiar gesture the night-flying Archaeopteryx on the foully symbolic Stella, and added as if in an afterthought, Raftontis will remain with you till the accomplishment of the Gesh and the end of your journey below Vormithradreth. He knows the secrets of the underworld and the layering places of the Old Ones. If our lord Sathagua should disdain the blood offering, or in his generosity should send you on to his brethren, Raftontis will be fully competent to lead the way whithersoever is ordained by the god. So that's that. Yeah, <laughs> so what is what is a what is a gesh? We should say what a gesh is, right? It's like a curse, right? It's like a yes. It, yeah, it's like a magical yeah implication or not implication, but like it impels you to do something. Yeah, yeah. magical compulsion. Yeah. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. So even as worldly as he is, he can't resist this gesh. 
Yeah, he's completely controlled, and he can't control his limbs, and he just goes walking, takes off his his weapons, and goes wandering off. And but awesomely, he's accompanied by Raph Tontis, the quote <laughs> night flying unquote lizard tailed Archaeopteryx. <laughs> And of course, this is like a prehistoric wizard. So he has a prehistoric animal for his yes. familiar, which is it's so awesome. badass. I it's love so it. Good. What do you think? Like, it's funny that you point out specifically that he's night flying. That's such a weird detail to put in about that bird, right? Plus, yeah. also, he mentions in the story that it's daytime when he comes upon Esdegor. So do you I don't. Think I don't know why he's getting paid overtime. Yeah, maybe because yeah. maybe because in the cave it's going to be dark. Mm, maybe. That's ah. a good point. maybe you can see oh, in the dark. Yeah. Also, right. also, do you think that in hindsight, maybe the story would be stronger if there were songs? No, if <laughs> yes, <laughs> if uh, Esdegor didn't have this whole last thing where he basically like tips his hat about uh, what's going to happen in yeah, the rest I of guess the story. So. Maybe. Um, yeah, a little bit, but it's it's only like a sentence or two, but yeah. It's true, it's true. I'm just saying it feels a little bit like it, it's in there to cover the rules of the story that's right. going to happen next, and I, I don't know if it's necessary. Well, so was the seven gashes, though. Like, there's going to be seven. That's true. Well, that's right, but, but that's a little bit different, though, because this is this is um, making sure that the rules of Raftant is following him uh. doesn't make the reader feel like it. he shouldn't. Like, I would never question that Raftant would continue with him, but... Whatever, it doesn't matter. Well, I, I, I might, so, I might though. I might say, well, why, why would Reftonta stay with him after he fulfilled the first gash if he was only sent down? And I guess, that? I guess maybe the other thing that bothers me about it is that I wish that Esdegor didn't have any inclination what happened to him after he went under the mountain, and this makes it seem yeah. clear that Esdegor knows right. that not that it will happen, but that it could happen. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, that's true. Do you think his story would be stronger if Reftontas talked? No. No. Yes. <laughs> What if what if you could only say his name like a Pokemon? <laughs> Raptontus. <laughs> Tim, no. <laughs> this is the the most Disney like story of Hyperborea so far, and I can't believe you're against the Disneyfication of it. <laughs> I, yeah, kind of like mid '90s Disney, you know, yeah. like uh, with songs by the uh, the Little Shop, like by what's his name, the Little Shop of Horrors songwriter. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, Raftonis is like Jafar's bird, but you know, with Harvey mm-hmm. Firestein doing the voice. Oh, God, never mind. I just died. I just yeah. myself. No. I just, I just yeah, like you a, took it. You took it too far. You played your hand, and Disney's we all know you don't the seven guesses. <laughs> <laughs> Raft Hunters. Tim. Sorry. No. I no. no. I I'm down only human. I'm not Vormies, okay? Basically, Wait, hold, he's, on. Uh, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Okay. I forgot my favorite detail, which is that he quenches his fire with a mixture of dust and blood. <laughs> yes. He's a pretty damn good sorcerer. Yeah. He knows yeah. what he's doing. Okay. So he fights his way into the mountain with his Wait, fists. Wait, don't. Don't don't gloss over what happens here. Hey, Tim, you tell us what happened. <laughs> okay, so Esdegor allows him to keep his armor on because he knows he's gotta he's gotta walk through the cavern of the Vormis. And that they're gonna attack him. So he walks through and he can't he can't really fight them, right? Or can he fight them? He can them? fight no, he them. Fights yeah, them. he just oh, doesn't have any he, he like destroys whole families. I, <laughs> he yeah. does. It's like super bloody what happened. <laughs> Not just, like a Disney yeah. movie at all. He just <laughs> wades through. And the quote, their young beslavered his ankles with mouths wherein the fangs were as yet ungrown. 
Tim, where's the song in that? Where's where's Andrew Lloyd Webber's song about that? How's Alan Menken going to make that cool? <laughs> For the kiddies. <laughs> I don't know. They're little kid vormies. They're probably super cute. Oh, yeah. So, you know, actually, when I got to this part of the story, I realized that I had misremembered it from when I read it years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, because my, okay, basically, this is kind of a story about hubris, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. In the sense mm-hmm. that there's this guy who thinks he's really badass and he's so great. And then, um, like in most Clark Ashton Smith stories, he just is, comes across something which is totally overwhelming and he's completely fucked and also humiliated. Um, but uh, what I had misremembered was that, uh, was that it starts with him and his men killing a bunch of Vormies. And then they meet the wizard and the wizard is like, well, now I'm going to uh, gas you to go to, to some, you know, to go, go meet Sothogua. So I had turned it into kind of a punishment for hubris thing in which the Vormies were kind of made sympathetic by, def- by you know, exclusion. And, you know, it's kind of like a... I kind of basically had made, had in my mind that the Vormies were killed, you know, mercilessly. But, and then these guys were like, well, you think you're so hot right. and all, like, you know, advanced, but now you're going to get really screwed. But it's in fact, right. it's not Reverse. like that at all. The yeah. Vormies are just like evil monsters. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Why do you think, um, either from, uh, like, a hypothetical character psychological point or just from the logic of the story, why does Esdegor make him drop his weapons? It doesn't seem to really matter. It's not like he meets anything he could kill with his weapons, I, nor does it seem to matter when he's fighting the Vormies who he just kills with his hands. I think that may be some kind of humiliation. It might be okay. kind of rude to Sasagua, too, to send them, you know, to yeah, his weapons. true. Oh, yeah, that's true. true. He's going yep. before okay. gods. So he's in the caverns. And, quote, everywhere was that dim, unnatural light whose source he could not ascertain, which is good because the story would be really boring if you couldn't see in the dark and we didn't know what the hell was happening. (laughs) You know, if I could change one thing about the planet, apart from, like, eliminating climate change and pollution and poverty, I'd make caves glow because there's so many awesome stories about glowing underground worlds. I'm I'm glad you have your priorities straight. Thank you. Although I think I would probably uh, reverse the order of those things so that, like, cave site was number one. <laughs> and then all the rest of that stuff. <laughs> well, it wasn't in any particular order. It's just, you know, like a... You, you just know, can't leave a, the rest It's a package out. deal. It's everything or nothing, you know? Yeah. And he goes through these caverns. And the caverns are... Not only are they, do they have the Valeras or the Vormies, who are these subhuman, you know, like monstrous ape people but it also there's all kinds of weird creepy stuff off in the distance if uh another quote wings that were too broad for those of the bat flew vaguely overhead and at wiles in the shadowy caverns he beheld great fearsome bulks having a likeness to those behemoths and giant reptiles which burdened the earth in earlier times but because of the dimness he could not tell if these were living shapes or forms that the stone had taken there's monsters everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that dinosaur's burden there. Yeah. They were such a burden. <laughs> Good thing we got rid of them. They don't really contribute anything, right? No, I mean, they don't really pay their own rent. Seriously. They contribute awe. That's true, I guess. So eventually the bird stops in front of a cavern uh, that is distinguished from the others by a most evil potpourri of smells. Yeah. <laughs> which I just think is a really hilarious indicator of who's inside the cave. Um, He's totally burning incense to mask yeah. the scent. <laughs> it's it like potpourri. Really, you chose potpourri? So he, he follows, well, you know, it's an evil potpourri. Yes. It's an evil potpourri, yeah. But, I mean, who knows if that's 
like <laughs> sort of Vuz's ob- observation if we're to understand that he thinks who knows what Vuz has smelled. So before, it might be just doesn't. regular potpourri and, and Vuz just thinks it's evil. <laughs> it might be. It might be. We don't know. <laughs> I'm on board. <laughs> so he goes into this this chamber um, where there are signs of much violence and 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 blood and things, um, and it seems like it's an empty cavern. Uh, but then something starts to move. With new horror and a sense of hideous doom, he heard his own voice speaking without volition. O Lord Sathagua, I am the blood offering sent by the sorcerer Esdegor. There was a sluggish inclination of the toad-like head. The eyes opened a little wider, and light flowed from them in viscous tricklings on the creased underlids. Then Ralabar Vuz seemed to hear a deep rumbling sound, but he knew not whether it reverberated in the dusky air or in his own mind, and the sound shaped itself, albeit uncouthly, into syllables and words. Thanks are due to Esgador for this offering. But since I have fed lately on a well-blooded sacrifice, my hunger is appeased for the present, and I require not the offering. However, it may be that others of the Old Ones are athirst or famished. And since you came here with a gesh upon you, it is not fitting that you should go hence without another. So I place you under this gesh, to betake yourself downward through the caverns till you reach, after long descent, that bottomless gulf over which the spider god, Atlak Nacha, weaves his eternal webs. And there, calling to Atlak Nacha, you must say, I am the gift sent by Sithagwa. I read that with like my eyes half open. <laughs> There's a few things that I really like about this. Number one, I love that his eyes are glowing. Sathagiwa. Mm-hmm. It seems like yeah. such a, um, I don't know, like such an animation type thing, like something you'll see in like a manga or like a Disney movie or some kind of cartoon. But or Smith you, wouldn't maybe have been. CGI, but. Yeah, but Smith wouldn't have been, like, exposed to that. So I think it's really cool that he thought of, oh, this god thing totally has glowing eyes that glow Mm -hmm. in the dark. And just the way he explains it is very cool. And the second thing is the sacrifices that are laid in front of him. He describes them as skin-clad skeletons. So I'm wondering if he just, (laughs) if he either, A, sucks their blood, Mm-hmm. Or just lets them die there until mm-hmm. they just die because he's too lazy to actually eat them. <laughs> he, just, he just wants them to present themselves and then they just die and he leaves them. There. I think I think he picks them up and kind of like drinks them like a beer can. Mm-hmm. Oh, that sounds and tedious. Just sucks everything out of them and then they're just left these like souls. <laughs> like a beer like, can. Like he a just throws can. them behind the couch. Like 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 yeah, one of those exactly. juice packs where you you know you you. Sip it out till it's dry. He sticks a straw on their heads. <laughs> <laughs> He's lazy. Sakalik would definitely use a straw. But I love that Sathagu is so polite. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah, he is. <laughs> I love that he and uh, pretty much every other thing which we encounter in this story is, is just so, you know, 
they have such good grammar and they're <laughs> they so really appreciative and you know it is very jack vance like here oh yeah, yeah i was thinking mm-hmm. the same thing yeah although so, in jack vance stories they would not the sataku wouldn't be so nice as to give you know relevant foods to somebody else he'd like probably have him like sweep the floor or something <laughs> like that you know or <laughs> yeah. wipe off the television i wish that 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 the seven guests had been um speaking of like Wizard Apprentice is part of Fantasia. That would have been an awesome <laughs> right? Disney version. Yeah. Of yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and Fantasia was scary enough to make it work. Speaking as one who got childhood nightmares from that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I also love that this story, I mean, it, we, I guess we can talk more about where it goes, but like, I love that it, it's, its starting point is the established god of Hyperborea, basically, and then it's going to take you to, like, weirder places right. than mm-hmm. Sofagua. Because up to this point, like, Sofagua was kind of, not necessarily an end point, but he was, like, the supreme being that everybody was kind of running into. And now suddenly it's, like, Atvok, Naka, what? Like, what are, you, yeah. <laughs> what are you talking about now? Which is kind of awesome. Uh, I think yeah. I would probably describe this as, like, an encyclopedic story. There's just, like, monster after monster after monster. Uh, but we can talk about that, I guess, once we get through all the rest of the of the Geshes. You know, I like this story so much, I wish it was called The 99 Geshes. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I was going to, I was going to say that we should end the episode with like the question, find out what Jason really thinks of the story, but now you just blew it. So, God darn it. <laughs> On the next Double Shadow, find out about the next four and weirder Geshes, mostly because we want to talk about this and it's really going to take two episodes worth of time. Double shadow listeners, I compel you to tune in next time and listen to part two of the seven. Drop all your weapons. Drop all your weapons. This is your gesh. You can wear your armor and your clothes. I was yeah. thinking more like, you know, like your God can f- my d- but <laughs> <laughs>